0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 2, 1 through 11. Please read with me the verses in bold. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord.
1: She sells seashells by the seashore. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked. If Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, where's the peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked? I'm reading. (laughs) How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? He would chuck, he would, as much as he could, and chuck as much wood as a woodchuck would if a woodchuck could chuck wood. I'm just trying to get my tongue loose uh, before I <laughs> preach this morning. Well, First John almost reads like a tongue twister. The message is pretty straightforward, but as one commentator puts it, John presents us with an abrupt, exceedingly complex, syntactically convoluted, frequently ambiguu- ambiguous, complicated interweaving of stammering, inferior... Inf- I could say that with tongue twisters, but I cannot read this. Infuriatingly obscure, insider language, a grammatical triangle. And you get the sense when you read through the book of 1 John, it sounds like a tongue twister. When you read through the first chapter, you wonder, what is the which in which... John is referring to, and who is the we, and what does we have to say about which, and to you, we wonder whether we have stumbled upon a Dr. Seuss book. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. At the same time, it is a new (laughs) command that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, and whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You you guys get what I'm saying. It's a, a tongue twister to say the least. We are in the second installment of a series in the letters of John, that's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that we're calling For the Love of God, Community, and the World. It's a short letter written by the Apostle John, one of the disciples to Jesus, again here at the end of John's life. He writes this, who was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're, we're told we're getting a first-hand account of Jesus and his claims that he was more than just a good person, a good teacher, or even a prophet sent by God, that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the one who had existed from eternity past. Last week, we looked at Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, and John's main burden in this epistle is the character of God, and so he begins his letter by by exhorting to us who God is, the nature, the character of who God is, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is the foundation of the letter. This is the thesis of the letter, rooted in Old Testament theology, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We'll be exploring this over the next three months, not just who Jesus claimed to be, but to also uncover what this means for us. It's all in the structure and the messaging of 1 John, of this particular letter. Again, I mentioned last week the three cardinal tests for whether we know or not. John says, we know by these three And again, the word know, right, to know, is a word repeated often in this short letter. There is something like, uh, there are something like 2,134 words in the book of 1 John, and yet 40 times, over 40 times, John uses this word to know. And again, this is not a just know something intellectually like E equals MC squared. I know that. Or Sacramento is the capital of California. Or 5,280 feet make a mile, if you watch the NBA finals. It would be one of the facts written on the floorboards of ball arena where the champion Denver Nuggets play. But the word to know John doesn't use intellectually, but he uses it experientially, a lived-out knowledge. What do I know? Who do I know? Who do I have a relationship with? I mean, listen to this. In verse 3, John writes these words, and by this we know, right? Again, a Dr. Seuss book. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Last week, we talked about it. We addressed how we can come to know God. And we said three tests, three cardinal tests for whether we know or not. We said, one, it's theological, right? The book of First John lays it out for us in a way that says, that knowing God is theological, to assent to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that Jesus is a son of God himself, right? He is, as he claims, the bread of life, the light of the world, right? The the open door. He is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Again, he is all these things he claims to be that, again, When we say theological, we believe that, again, we assent to the fact that, again, here, Jesus is the Son of God. We believe it, right? We have faith in the fact that, again, Jesus is who he claimed to be. John also says, not only is it theological, but it's moral, right? It requires that we obey the commands of God, that we do what he says to do. And thirdly, it's social, that it shows the way we love one another, so with all that being said, in 1 John chapter 2, John starts this chapter with these words, my little children. It's not derogatory. It's a term of endearment, my beloved. My little children, I write these things to you. And I love how simply John says this. He says, so you may not sin. I don't know about you, but it's not that easy. Uh, Sin. Each week during a portion of our service, we confess our sins to God like we did with uh, Elder Calvin Tarver this morning. Now, it may seem like a strange thing to do to confess sin, like a relic of the ancient past, an outdated practice, unnecessary and irrelevant, to some, to consider ourselves sinners and need a forgiveness might be offensive or repulsive, since most of us are pretty good, sincere people. Perhaps it's toxic to believe that we are innately undeserving or flawed or wicked or wrong or unacceptable. Surely thinking of ourselves this way can be harmful to our self-worth and certainly to our mental health. And still others, there is a belief that sin is is a made-up concept, a myth, and should be ditched altogether, a concept that's merely, uh, that's entirely man-made by an institution, uh, institution that determines what is right and what is wrong, perhaps to control people with fear and shame. But is this why we do it? Is this why we confess our sins each week? I think there's much more to it, and there's much more to what sin is, and why we do what we do in church. The confession of sin, to me, is an invitation to honesty, honesty with God, honesty with each other, and honesty with ourselves. Because each and every one of us knows, in our moments of deepest honesty, that not only is the word, not only is the world, uh, not only is the world not as it should be, but neither are or you or I. Whether we use creative names for sin like mistake or flaw or slip up, accident or misstep, a lapse in judgment, an offense or a wrongdoing, John addresses the fact that there is something fundamentally wrong with human nature. It's difficult to argue otherwise. The world, as you and I know, is not as it should be. And neither are you or I. I know this. I'm a pastor. I shouldn't be sinning. I'm perfect, actually. But I look in the mirror and I realize uh, so often how far I've fallen short in the way I interact with my wife, in the way I interact with my children, in the way I interact with my neighbors. Gosh, in the way that uh, I react when someone cuts me off or someone's going too slow in the first lane, I know it. You know, I quoted Douglas O'Donnell, a commentator, last week who says in his commentary on 1 John, he says, both scripture and experience teach that man is both majestic and monstrous. We are indeed majestic, for among all creation, we alone have the capacity for rational thought, moral choice, artistic creativity, covenantal relationships, and humble worship of the divine. And yet, we are also monstrous. Just watch the news. Just open the pages of a newspaper and you realize how monstrous we really are. It's frightening. And so John introduces chapter two with a very warm word, with a warm welcome and warm words towards the readers of this letter. He says, My little children, and John uses the word beloved, and my little children to show how much he cares for the readers of his letter. John's very purpose in writing to them is to encourage a life of holiness. He knows that Christians cannot live sinlessly difficult that is. We had a chance this week to look at the story of Jonah, and you know, you know the story of Jonah. The, And again, even uh, people who have never stepped foot inside the, the doors of a church know the story of Jonah about a man who gets swallowed by a big fish. Uh, we had a chance to look at chapter 2, and, and Pastor Brad was preaching to the kids about John chapter 2, and again, the whale is not a punishment for God's for, uh, for people's sins uh, so much as it is a provision of God's mercy to Jonah. I mean, it's both, right? It's it's the, the gravity of Jonah's sin, his disobedience to the word of the Lord, the, the one who goes the opposite direction. Again, here we have Nineveh and not Nineveh, and Jonah chooses not Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction of the way that God tells him to go, and really just a a reflection or a definition of what sin is, right? God tells Jonah to do one thing, and and Jonah does quite the opposite, goes in a different direction. Any other direction that's not Nineveh, he chooses to go. And sin, according to the word of God, again, is defined so simply as anything that goes against the word of God, a violation of God's word. And here's... God who provides a provision in our sin, a God who provides mercy in our sinfulness and our wickedness. His God knows, yes, how majestic we are because we're, you and I, all of us here in this room are created in the image of God. In the image of God, Genesis 1.26 tells us, in the image of God, He created them, male and female. He Created them. Let us make men in our image, is the are the words of of God about the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. And yet he knows in Genesis 3 that that Adam and Eve commit this horrendous sin. Again, it's just a, a violation of God's word, and they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had commanded them not to eat, and they do it. And the Bible tells that their eyes were open and they saw their nakedness. Shame before God. And not too long afterwards, we see the first horrendous act of a brother killing another brother. Of Cain taking the life of Abel. Yes, we're majestic and yet... Monstrous at the same time. I mean, you can, you can tell me examples of, of both of these. And knowing this, John introduces chapter 2 by saying, My little children. My little children. In verse 1, he says, I write these things to you. And very simply, he says, so that you may not sin. But who can live sinlessly? Who can keep the law of God perfectly? You see, the point I think John is making is he never wants us to stop hating sin or growing in holiness and grace. And so John says, again, a right view of sin and of the place of sin in the Christian life Uh, is is important for us to grasp that we cannot be complacent about sin but we need to promote holiness and that's why he writes these words his very purpose is to move us to want to grow in grace for you see in first john and all the way back to the old testament the law was never given to us so that we would have a checklist of things that we don't do and a list of things that we do You know, um, when I think about Father's Day and I think about my children again, it's never. This is what my dad wants me to do, and so check, I'll do it. Or this is what, not what what my father doesn't want me to do, and so I won't do that. But it's not. It's a relationship. My children do these things because of their love for their father. So he says, "Don't sin." Do you believe it's possible to go through a day without sinning? How about a morning? How about an hour? How about a minute? And so listen to the words of, of, of John, the tenderness in John's tone as he calls us to holiness. He says, my dear, my dear children, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but if anyone does sin. And I want you to grasp about three things he says about the Father and about Jesus. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate. We have one who intercedes for us. Two, he says Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a righteous one who intercedes on our behalf. And thirdly, he says he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Don't sin, but if you do, don't despair. This is the same word, advocate, that is used of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, of, uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 14 through 16, which uh, is translated, one who comes alongside, or one who call, is called alongside, like a defense attorney, he pleads our case before our Father. We have a free lawyer, a free lawyer, a free advocate. He pleads our case before the Father, again, not a hired person, but someone from his own clans, from his own clan. Again, here there's one accusing us, Satan, but Jesus stands up for us and declares us his own. And aren't you glad that you have an advocate who has never lost a case? We have one who is righteous. It says Jesus Christ is righteous. Jesus, who is the lamb unblemished, the spotless lamb of God, the sinless one, who did not die for his own sins, but the sins of the whole world, as we read in John chapter 3, verse 16. But he fully kept God's law in dependence on the Father. His righteousness is freely imputed to the one who trusts in him, the one who imputes to us his righteous, righteousness in exchange for our imputation of sin upon him upon the cross. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin, again referring to Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is the propitiation, a fancy word, a great word but not much used in our language with connection to the day of atonement in the Old Testament, essentially means to appease the wrath of God by Jesus' blood on the cross in our place. God extends to us his mercy for the whole world and applied to those who profess faith in Christ. His death was sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. Again, here John is saying, don't sin. Is he being idealistic? Do you think he's saying we can be sinlessly perfect? Not at all. So what does John believe? He believes in a life transformed by the power of the gospel. Two things. Here is the encouragement. Look at verses three through six. Building on the advocacy of Christ, verses three through six call us to conformity to the example of Jesus. In verse three, he says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. And then verse six is key. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Here's the encouragement for those of us who profess Christ. He says, live as Jesus lived. Live the way Jesus lived. The test of whether or not we know God is a, is a life marked by obedience, right? Living a life of obedience. To claim to know God without acknowledging his claim on us is empty. The emphasis on the word obey is a continuous uh, action. We obey God in everything we do. John is saying that we can come to know God. Uh, We can know, let me, this is a tongue twister. Jesus is saying that we can know that we know God by our desire to grow in obedience. That's how we know. That's how you know you belong, your desire to grow in obedience. If we truly know God, then we should also be growing in God. Our knowing must lead to growing. If we claim to be in the light, then we must do those things that are right? We can know that we know if we do what he says we should do. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. This is the sign. This is the way we know. This is how we know we know. When we live according to the word of God. In the case we don't quite get this, John takes a little, a little less subtle approach. In 1 John, he says, The man who says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This verse is very emphatic and should make us take an inventory. Uh, again, brothers and sisters, our profession of faith must be lived out in our practice of faith. I mean, listen to these words. We cannot say that we know God and not believe Jesus, right? Our theology. We cannot say that we know God and disobey his word, moral. Or we cannot say that we know God and hate our neighbor. Again, he's giving us a contrast here. How can you say, right? Again, we looked at this last week. If we say, and three times he repeats this, we cannot say that we know God and have these things out of order, And then John switches back to the positive in verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is made complete in him. What is he saying? When we obey God, God's love is unleashed in us. To say it another way, God's love accomplishes its purpose in us. God's love accomplishes its purpose in us. I mean, if you go back to John 13, and I'll quote it again. John 13 says, uh, in this, uh, in John chapter 13, we know that Jesus uh, disrobes himself. He girds himself with a towel, and he washes the feet of his disciples. And he says, a greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And he says that, uh, again, the, the, the whole point there is that, again, here we, are to love as Jesus loved. And again, Jesus says, uh, the world will know that we are his disciples, that you are my disciples by our love. It's made complete in us. You can know that you know God if there is something within you that compels you to obey Jesus. In your family relationships and how you raise your children and how you honor your parents, in your serving, in your giving, in your worshiping, you know. Again, this inclination, this compelling of the Spirit to obey is how we know we know. And so, friends, let me ask you are you living as Jesus lived? The one who lived in complete and perfect obedience to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 5, is the first occurrence of love, but certainly not the last. It will be used uh, throughout the book, both as a noun and also as a verb, 60 more times. Again, if the word no is used 40 times plus, 60 more times between 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Let me read uh, verses 7 to the end of that section. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. But an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What is is John saying? John is giving us an exhortation. In verses 3 through 6, live as Jesus lived. And in verses 7 through 11, he's saying to us, love as Jesus loved. This old commandment. It's fascinating the words of John. He says uh, this old commandment takes you way way back. Um I had a chance to attend a uh, a Bar Mitzvah 2 weeks ago, which is pretty fascinating. They read the Old Testament just like us. <laughs> so it's pretty neat to hear the uh, the Old Testament in Hebrew and uh uh for this Bar Mitzvah, she read the the Shema. And the Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And she talks, and she had a chance to read this section where we're supposed to love our God with our, our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, this old commandment. Yes, it says all this time. It goes way back to the first human beings. And again, here Jesus is is saying something, and in, in the book of John, and again, and John repeats this in the letters of John. He's saying this is an old commandment that's been, that's been with you from the very very beginning, just as it was to be. Held by Cain and Abel. We read it here today. This old commandment is the message you have heard from the very beginning. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet he says, this is a new command. Like, how is this a new one? It's old. It's an old, new command. It's like a uh, refurbished house or a house that's been remodeled. It's a new command in the sense that it is fresh and different when experienced in Christ. And again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44 says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus himself called his command to love one another, new in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new command. Again, here Jesus is playing on words. It's not a new, it's an old command, but he says, a new command I give you, love one another, And here, we're, we're the part, where's the part that's new? He says, love one another. And this is the part that gets us every time. As I have loved you. It's not just a love for one another. It's getting along with one another. But it's a love that Jesus, he exemplifies for us in John 13 as he washes the feet of his disciples and says, a new command I give you. It's not the loving one another, but it's the way I have loved you. So you must, he says, love one another. And again, I love what Jesus does. He models for us how we should love others, sacrificially and abundantly and generously. And when others persecute you, you love them. When your enemies hate you, you love them. It's a model that's contradictory to the way that we see our our nation doing and how we are to love one another. We are to love as Christ loved us. And so John finishes that section by quoting the words of Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? According to 1 John, there are three tests. Do you pass the theological And the moral and the social test. I know we can pass, most of us can pass the theological one. And maybe some of us can pass the moral one, but the social one. Given in verses 7 through 11, the result of this final test are obvious to all. It's the one that is evident to all. As obvious as the difference between light and darkness. Let me quote one commentator here. He he finishes this thought of uh, verses 7 through 11 with these words. He says, are you living in darkness? Are you controlled by the the unholy habits of hatred? Are you envious, arrogant, rude, irritable, resentful, and insistent on your own way? Do you rejoice when others stumble? Or are you living in the light? Does the love of Christ compel you to love others? Are you kind and patient with everyone? Have you forgiven those who have trespassed against you? Do you serve the least of these, my brothers, as you would Jesus himself? Do you bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things? And Jesus says, I am the example. I never ask you to do something. Ladybug. It's outside the cup, so don't worry. (laughs) Apologize for getting us off track a little bit. Uh, Jesus never asks us to do something that he would never do himself. He never just tells us to go love love our enemy without having loved his enemies. If you remember on the cross, Jesus says to those at the foot of the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Whoever slaps you on the one cheek, turn the other. I mean, so many of these examples uh, really throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus says we are to do because again here, Jesus did it himself. All the way to the cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross.